from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. Today we have an action-packed Writer's Talk as Doug Dangler talks to Ohio State alum Dara Naragi, here with fellow graphic artists Ken Epstein and Max Inc. about writing and illustrating for comics and graphic novels. Ken Epstein is the editor, writer, and publisher of Nick's Comic Quarterly, and just placed in the final 20 scriptwriters for MTV's Stan Lee Seekers contest. Dara Naragi was born in Iran and lived through the 1979 Islamic Revolution before eventually moving to the United States when he was 12. He has been writing comics and graphic novels for about 10 years, starting by publishing under his own imprint, Ferret Press, and later for some of the top U.S. comics publishers. His graphic novels include Lifelike, The Terminator Salvation Adaptation, and The Absurd Adventures of Archibald Aardvark. Max Inc. has been a comics writer and illustrator for over 10 years and recently published Blink so far, a collection of his cartoons about life, described on his website as, quote, not the kind of edgy stuff you might equate with most alt comics, but a nice counterbalance to that sort of work. They're like little stories to read when you're in a foul mood and want to pick me up. Welcome, cartoonists, to Writer's Talk. Thanks. Thank you. All right, so let's start off with the, uh, I think, one of the tropes of comics, the origin story. Right? How did you get into comics? What was your way? Where did you get the superpower? When did it happen? Were you bitten by a pen? How did you get into comics? Um, well, I think for me, probably like everybody else, just when I was a kid, they were around. Uh, in my case, maybe it was a little bit different. I grew up in Iran, but um, the big comics that almost every kid had and read were the Tintin comics that Hergé did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of other European um, Let's just say you're talking about in, 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 in Europe and other places. I'm not sure that Tintin was as well right. known here. And, yeah, and I think probably the U.S. is probably the last place where it's not as well known. Although there's a Spielberg movie coming out. so right. Which is a live action movie, right? It's, uh, uh, I, I think it's that you're... weird CGI where they do the motion capture on oh, okay. actual actors. All right. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that was, that's how I grew up. And uh, you know, every once in a while I'd get a, uh, some kind of American comic, like a Spider-Man or a Batman from somewhere. And then when we moved here, um, I remember uh, riding my bike down to like a little mom and pop grocery store that was real close to our house. And they had the old spinner racks of comics. And I was just amazed at how many there were. So I think it was nonstop after that. You must have fainted when you went into your first big comic books store to see, to go from the spinner rack to the walls. It was a revelation. It was, it was amazing. Yeah. Okay. You know, the first time I remember going into a comic book store, it wasn't new stuff. It was old stuff. It, they were they were antique stores, basically. You'd go in, and they'd have old comics up on the wall and, you know, like a $50 price tag. That, like, <laughs> that, that like, wowed me as, like, a 10-year-old kid. Like, oh, But that's my how gosh. you got started in comics? Was Michelle not 50 bucks for antique? No, no, no. I got... No, no. That, that's the first time I went Saved into a up. comic store. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. The, it, was, it was the 7-Eleven for me. They were... You know, ubiquitous in that sense. You, you went down to the 7-Eleven with a buck, and you could get two comics and a candy bar, and that mm-hmm. was that was your day. You're not dating yourself at all, since they're a buck 25 <laughs> to a buck 50 a piece now, so that's okay. <laughs> uh, and how did you get started, uh, Max? Um, well, reading the newspaper comic strips really is what got me into reading comics, and I really didn't like superhero comics, but when Star Wars came out and I saw it on the big screen over and over and over again, couldn't get enough of it. When I found out that there was a comic book version of it, 
uh, I had my mom get me a subscription to it. So I was reading comics long before I actually got into a comic shop. What was there about Star Wars that made you think you would want to read it in a comic form? Because I couldn't wait for the next movie to come out. <laughs> and, and you thought you'd get the answers ahead of time. No, not really. It was just I wanted more. I mean, <laughs> these days, that more comes out every few seconds it seems, on the internet. But at that point, back in the 70s, it was once a month, and I couldn't even wait once a month. So that's why I started creating my own comics, because I couldn't wait for the next issue of Star Wars to come out. So I made my own space opera. Okay, what was the name of that space opera? The Warriors. <laughs> it had okay. nothing to do with the movie whatsoever. So there wasn't there wasn't a, a Princess Leia or anything. No. A, uh, okay. Uh, so what were the first couple of comics that, that you all did? Do you have a similar origin story? Again, I'm waiting for somebody to be bitten by a radioactive pen. It hasn't happened. But go on. Uh, the the one that I kind of joke about back when I was a kid is uh, I used to cut out. Um, there was like a. a monthly magazine for kids with like puzzles and games and little short stories and there was a comic strip that was serialized in it and it was about a, a magical being that came to life for this elderly couple that didn't have a kid and it was kind of like their kid and it went on a magical bean yeah it was a bean from like a stew <laughs> so like this old lady was making a stew and uh, i remember cutting out um those pages and then at some point putting them all in like in a book format like the mm -hmm. collected edition of this comic strip and i put my name on the front of it which, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so generously borrowing from other authors i've heard it's a it's a form of homage <laughs> to have uh, the magic bean like that was disney yeah. <laughs> i appropriate okay but no but the real the, the first one i think i actually wrote and and um, the artwork was done, we published it, uh, was a book called AKA, and it was about two female private investigators. And it was sort of a tongue-in-cheek, sort of a Nancy Drew, but a little bit grown-up kind of a story. Okay. And I was okay. bitten by a radioactive pen. Good. Finally. <laughs> Not this one, but I'm glad to hear that. A book. Um, you know, it wasn't the first, like, comic strip type thing I ever actually put together. It wasn't until I was, I was an adult, actually. I did a lot of doodling and a lot of drawing and a lot of writing and a lot of, a lot of role-playing games as a kid, but, but it, never, it never coalesced as a, as a comic until um, about eight years ago, I had been doing a series of um, email interviews for a newsletter that I was running. And I got the bright idea of putting the uh, newsletters into, into an illustrative narrative, but I never wanted the pictures narrative to match the actual content of the interview. So, mm -hmm. so I started doing those with uh, a couple different artists, but mostly my brother, who, who's, who's a, he's a painter by trade. So it was, it was a stretch for him, but he enjoyed doing them. Okay. Um, and those got published in Rocktober magazine, which is a, a <laughs> it's a great magazine, though. Um, is this a national magazine? Yeah, it is. It's called Rocktober. It's called Rocktober magazine. It comes it's out a, every month of the year, not just in the fall. It's, a, it, it's biannual. It comes out twice a year. Um, or maybe quarterly. Probably depends <laughs> on the year. <laughs> but, but yeah, it, it's, a, it's a music magazine and a comic magazine. So it's, it's half and half. Half of it's music reviews and interviews and stuff. And the other half is an open submission cartoon format. Okay. So you, uh, if, I get, if, if I'm getting this correctly, Ken and Dara, you work on the, the stories. You write the stories. And then other people supply the illustrations. That's your right. usual mode. Um, Tell me about working with an illustrator, uh, because Max is his own illustrator, and we'll, we'll come to him in a minute, but mm -hmm. tell me about how, when you're working with somebody, you say, okay, this is the story, 
Do you give them a stick figure drawing and say, this is what I think it should look like, this is how I want you to do it? How specific do you get with them? Depends on the artist and my relationship with them. Okay. I, I did a lot of that early on of doing, doing my own um, plotting of the pages and using stick figures or whatever I, you know, whatever I had to the best of my ability. And often I'll, I'll ask them to, to research certain things online. I, I'm, what, do you I'm have them, what kind of things do you have them research like? The, well, um, I'm working on a Western right now, and, and I, I told uh, Bob Ray Starker, who's, who's a local musician, so um, that I've kind of brought out as an artist as well exposed them as an artist to, to look up um, certain different characters from old mo Western movies. I, you know, one character I said, well, I want his hat to be like the, the, the hat that uh, Jim Bowie wore in the Alamo, the original Alamo movie, <laughs> stuff like that. You know, I find that, that you, have to, you have to, based on what you know about the artist, find a way to, to get them inside your head a little bit that way. Okay. So you welcome them in. <laughs> to uh, so that's a good thing. Welcome them in and, and, and let them screw around with what's in there too. I okay. mean, that's a give and take. Okay. So tell me about how you work with them. Uh, well, I can say it. I mean, it, it kind of depends on the artist. For the most part, I think most writers these days um, work in what's called full script, where you basically not only describe all the action, but you break it down into all the panels. Like, you know, there's going to be six panels on this page. You, you talk about what happens in each panel. Uh, and then all the dialogue is there as well, sound effects, pretty much everything. Um, and, you know, again, depending on the artist or the publisher or the editor or whatever, they have some leeway if they want to deviate from your script or not, but that's fairly standard. There are some artists that I've worked with that actually prefer sort of an older method that's called plot or like Marvel style, because they used to be when Marvel Comics in the 60s, um, where the, the writer would write a, a general plot for the whole issue of what's going to happen. And then it was up to the artist to decide how to break it down into pages and panels. Hmm. And then the artwork would go back to the, the writer and they would, based on you know, the, the arrangements of the panels and everything would fill in the, the dialogue. So it was like more back and forth collaborative. That's and really I've done that a couple of times. And it's actually, it, it is a lot of fun, but it's a little bit more time consuming because you do have to you know, kind of wait for the artist to be done and it comes back to you and then it may go back to them if there needs to be tweaks. Well, doesn't that seem like uh, you're the, the illustrator then gets to dictate sort of a lot? I mean, it takes in your ideas, but then says, you know what, I want a fight scene here. I mean, how much leeway is there in that relationship where you get something back if you've worked this way and go, well, I didn't really expect that? Oh, right. Yeah, and I, I think that happens all the time, and uh, especially, you know, like in, in, for the big publishers. It all depends on what the editor allows, uh, how big of a name the artist is. You know, mm -hmm. it's... Uh, there's really no no set rules. Most of the stuff I've done that I've self-published, obviously, have been with friends. So I already, you know, we get along really well. We know each other's style, and they tend to be short stories that I've worked with. So um, there's not a, you know, a lot of issues. I've run into, when I've done freelance work for some publishers, where I'll have a full script, but the artist still decides to draw something different, and then it comes back to me, and I have to, you know, redo the dialogue to match what, what the page now looks like, so... That's not I think fun. that would be a very difficult thing to do. To say you get something back, you have one interpretation, and all of a sudden, it's different, and you got to say, "Well, I got to make up dialogue to match because these put in this." Yeah, it is. You know, and you you have to try and balance it in your mind because really, it is it is a collaboration. So it's not like you know, I'm the dictator, and hey, this is how the story's going to be. Mm -hmm. And there's times where the artist will make changes that absolutely make sense in terms of making the storytelling clearer. Uh, you know, maybe I, I forgot to have the very first panel be an establishing shot of, hey, where's all this action taking place? You know, like an exterior shot of a building or whatever. And they'll put that in and that's, that's fine. 
there's other times where they may make a decision that, you know, is questionable to me, but, you know, you kind of roll with it and you try to keep your ego out of it as much as you can. And, you know, well, let's go to the, the, uh, the most the egomaniac here. Cause you get to write your own, you get a script, your own, no, I'm just kidding. You, you, but you draw your own, you're different. You do the drawing, you do the story, you do the dialogue. It's all up to you. Yeah. That's how I started when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And then when I was in my 20s, I actually just did the art and I worked with other writers. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to do that egomaniac thing. <laughs> and, really? yeah, well, I, I wanted to tell certain kinds of stories okay. and I wanted to find my voice as not only an artist, but as a writer. Okay. And the, in my opinion, the only way I could do that is to write my own stuff. And so. illustrate it by yourself as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I've always drawn. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to get a handle on how to write comics. Um, you know, I started out with escapism stuff. And the stuff that I do with the comic Blink is actually comes out of uh, Jules Pfeiffer, mm-hmm. a right. cartoonist, theater creator, um, and script writer for movies as well. And he said that comics are not so much like movies, but they're more like theater. And so when I think about it being two characters or three or more characters actually just talking and having emotional connection, for me, that's what my stories are Mm -hmm. as opposed to, I mean, I have fight scenes, but it's people raising their voice at each other. Okay. <laughs> and very few leotards. I know oh, yeah. it's very few costumes. Uh, in the- well, the girls wear costumes. <laughs> Some women who read the stories, they say, I really like what she's wearing. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. For more information about our guests, visit us at writerstalk.org. Now back to our interview with graphic novelists Dara Naragi, Ken Epstein, and Max Inc. Okay. Well, let's turn to that. Let's turn to one of the panels in Blink. Um, We've got one uh, called Time in a Few Words. Mm -hmm. And one of the descriptions uh, you talked to me about this was uh, using different techniques, showing the language of comics. Mm -hmm. Because comics are a combination of dialogue, um, story, and that story is told, obviously, through the picture. So it's very important um, and and why I find it interesting that an artist can say, you know, I won another panel here. And and as a writer, you don't go, ah, I'm losing my mind. That's not what I want. But um, so tell me about the way that you did this particular panel, um, the time and a few words panel. Um, We've got two people sitting around. They're listening to music. Mm -hmm. And then I'll have you just sort of explain it and we can show it. Well, the, the first panel is what's called the establishing shot. And I I just give a very brief inclination of where they are. They're sitting at a table and there are other people there and uh, there's music being played. It's not really as important as just the two characters and their connection that they have. Um, And then so that's that's the first. This is called each. uh, This is called a tier. So this is tier one. Tier two. Moving from top to bottom. Right. And then these individual are panels. Those are the panels. And then this whole thing is called a page. And so this second tier has four panels. And I like to put very small amounts of dialogue per panel. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she says, not now. 
and it takes blink by surprise, so that explains why her word balloon looks that way. And she yeah, says, the what? word balloon is square as opposed to the right. circular. Uh, what? 62 down, not now. And then a silent panel, which, and that silent panel tells the reader, informs the reader that it's, it's a, uh, to wait. It's, it's like a brief pause. It also gives a suggestion of the character development itself. The person seems to be looking at, because you've got them um, next to each other in the panels, she seems mm -hmm. to be almost looking at the other panel. Right, right. Even though they're two different panels, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things about panels is it breaks up time. And then also how tall the panels are here compared to this wide shot here and puts them both at the, in the same panel. Uh, and they both talk in that panel. Okay. And, and the way that her word balloon looks, she's kind of gravelly, grouchy. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then you've got the, the thing at the bottom. Right. Giving the title of the page, time in a few words. And being that it's in that crossword, it's kind of hit home okay. about what it is. And also there's this poke, poke, and it's really almost, um, I mean, it's just so small, but it's just a little thing. Okay. So that's um, how you're progressing across. Um, what I'd like to do then is, is ask um, next Dara about a sure. panel that I have here from um, what I believe you're, you're saying is the autobiography uh, of when you were growing up in Iran. And tell me about some of the choices that you made here and uh, both in the writing of it, uh, which, sorry, I got a little cut off there, the writing about it. And then I'd like to hear about how you worked with the illustrator to create the, um, the subdued tones, the, what you chose to uh, add color to, things like that. Right. Sure, um, yeah, this is from, uh, it's just a short eight-page story uh, called uh, The Protest, and it's about um, just, uh, I guess, an anecdote from that I remember when I was in sixth grade in Iran, and it deals with being in school, and the principal basically gathers all the kids at, at the end of the school day when you're about ready to go home and saying, oh, by the way, we're shipping you all in buses to downtown to take part of some big like anti-American protest. I don't even know what the protest was for, but mm -hmm. they're basically going to ship us out there. And, you know, it kind of deals with all the all the thoughts that go through your mind when you're thinking, you know, what's going to happen to us? When are we going to get back? What are my parents going to think when I'm not home? Um, and then the, the another subplot is this bully um, that had kind of been bothering me and my friends and how he kind of ends up helping us in a surprising way in the story. So this, this, this page is, um, I think, like the third page, so it's somewhat in the middle. The, uh, the artist on it is uh, Victor Santos. Um, I had worked with him on a couple other uh, kind of higher profile projects that um, publisher had put out, uh, and we'd done like eight issues together. So I kind of felt comfortable with him, and we had a pretty good working relationship. And when it came, you know, I had this idea to do this story, and I asked him if he wanted to illustrate it for me, and he said, sure. So it was, it was pretty easy. You know, I did the full script, um, and then I just kind of turned it over to him and, and let him make the decisions in terms of, you know, how he's going to frame them. So did you do the script in, uh, here's a panel line, here's a panel line? Right, yeah. So you make those decisions about how you're going to lay out the page, and then he does the illustrations on it. Right. So you gave him, say, in sixth grade it was Hassan, he was a loner usually keeping to himself. Then he decided, okay, I'm going to just picture this guy. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm curious about whether you go back and say, you know, that's what, how I want it to look. That's not how I want it to look. I want him to glower more. Right, I want right. him to, what, what's your relationship uh, to telling the story at that point? Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes there's that kind of back and forth. Uh, usually what I do with, uh, with scripts is at the beginning, if I have all, you know, all, all the different characters, I'll, I'll give a description. And if I want them to look a certain way, I'll try to put that in there. Or if 
you know, I think there's going to be um, photo references that the artist is going to need. So in this case, you know, this takes place in, I want to say maybe it was 1980 or 81 in Iran. So I kind of wanted to find some photo references in terms of what kind of clothes the kids would, war would wear, you know, because mm -hmm. I didn't want them to put me in like jeans and a t-shirt because that's not what I would be wearing then. Okay. Um, so, you know, things like that all include, and, and the beauty of, you know, living in the internet age is I can find references online easily and either include the pictures in the script because, you know, we do everything th through email. Um, or, you know, give him links. But yeah, but then basically he, he comes back and he does some sketches and says, hey, this is, you know, this is how I'm going to draw you, this is how I'm going to draw this other character. Okay. And, and if everything looks great, no problem. Otherwise, you know. Do you, do you set out a tone for it um, or is that all the artistic choices? For example, you've got some interesting use of color here. You've got, basically it's a two-tone palette, it mm -hmm. seems to me. Um, this reddish orange and, and yellow. Was right. that a choice that, that the artist made or was that your choice how did that part of it come in to tell the story and what's sort of a sepia tone to it you know the thinking back right um actually that was kind of a, a little bit of both um i suggested uh, using a really limited color palette instead of you know just full-on um color and and it was for two reasons one was for the tone of the story it, you know this is essentially a flashback Mm -hmm. And, you know, I kind of like having a muted color palette and very few colors, and it kind of denotes the whole, you know, we're talking about something that happened in the past. But also there was, you know, somewhat of a practical reason for it, which was, you know, we're trying to finish this story under a really tight deadline. And he had other projects that he was doing. So, you know, he told me he wasn't sure if he'd have time to color the whole thing. Okay. And so the idea came up, well, why don't we do this limited color palette? And then he's the one who, who picked the colors, and I think he did a great job because he, you know, he has these reds where, you know, kind of, emphasizes either the action or like the, the anger that's going on with where he spots um, the color red. Okay. All right. And now, Ken, we'll go to yours. We've got the limited color palette. We go to Ken's who has just exploded the color palette Gaudy. here. <laughs> Gaudy, um, obviously. Uh, but it's a different idea. It's a different um, feeling that you want to get that you want people to get from it. And um, this is a story called The Devil's Record Shop, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, and I am. So tell me about the development of this. Tell me about how you worked with the uh, illustrator, although the cover is the same story. The interior also has, uh, when we get into the interior, it's, it isn't, I wouldn't say a limited color palette, but not full color. No, uh, and that was actually the artist's idea um, in this case. He, he kind of, he read through the script I had and he said, you know, I think it would be neat if the story as it builds the, the climax gets a little more color added to it and a little more uh, uh, hellish as it were, Okay. you know. And uh, I said, great. A lot of the time with the artists, particularly if it's somebody who um, I know is capable of really good things, I, I kind of let them go, you know. Uh, this first page um, was more or less, a, in my script, a, a nine-panel grid. Um, and, and Mark, who I met at the uh, Small Press Alternative Comics Expo, did I get that right? Space Expo. Um, uh, <laughs> nice, so, nice acronym. But it, it's like a wonderful, it. it's a lot yeah. easier to say than small. Anyway, it's a great convention that's held annually here in uh, Columbus. 
But I met Mark there, and uh, I, I liked a lot of the stuff he did. And there was definitely, he was also, you know, I came from being a, a music and records guy into comics, and, and he was coming from a similar place. So is this uh, autobiographical in the same way, then? You were offered uh, a records by the devil, since you have this background. Is that what you're getting at? Uh, I would probably still be selling records if I was <laughs> trying to work my way out. No, it, it's kind of my take on, you know, in High Fidelity, the scene where uh, he's offered the uh, a betrayed wife offers him a lifetime record collection from her husband to, uh, for like 50 bucks or 100 bucks or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. or in the book, I guess it was pounds. But and he, he turns it down out of uh, some sort of um, loyalty to the fraternity of collectors and... <laughs> Every time I every time I read the book or see the movie, I think, man, I would sell that guy out in a second. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you're so easily attracted to the Devil's Record Store. But not to give away the the plot to it. I mean, it does have these uh, elements of of being of temptation, things like that. And I'm curious about your relationship with the story in terms of you wrote it, you did it out in, in grids, you give it to the artist, the artist gives it back to you and you say, that's great, and you move forward or is there a negotiation revision? In this case, we got along really well and pretty much it felt like he had a main line into my head for, for, for what I wanted. But there have, been, there have been times where there's a lot of back and forth. Um, the story you open to on the next page, conveniently enough, um, it's done by a local guy, and it, ha it involves caricatures because it has actual, actual people in it. It's got James Brown and Joe Tex, mm -hmm. and um, there was a lot of back and forth between me and Matt over how to get Joe Tex looking like Joe Tex and how to get James Brown looking like James Brown. Mm -hmm. This story, the, the Devil's Record Collection, not so much. I, 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 Mark was pretty spot on every time he sent. I don't recall... Okay. Having back and how forth. long do you in just a real quick uh, survey how long does it take you to write a story like this or how long do you spend on the script is it a spot where you sit down and say boom I've written the script here it is or do you spend typically a long time going over the script tightening up the words changing the structure what do you what's your experience <laughs> so, uh, there there have been scripts that I've um, just like you know stories about musicians they sit down and and just write out a song there have been scripts that I've done that or others that have taken me years yeah it's it's hard uh, and I've never really sat down to kind of figure out if I really have some kind of a uh, pace or velocity or whatever but uh, it, sometimes it does come pretty easily sometimes it doesn't for me usually I have somewhat of a process that I follow most of the time which is when I first get the idea, I just kind of let it percolate in the back of my head. And, it, you know, I could spend a few days or a week or whatever just, you know, thinking about it until I, I really have it down. And so, oh, okay, this is how I want it to go. This is how I want it to end. This is the tone. And then the actual, you know, the more pedestrian process, I guess, of just putting it on paper tends to go quicker at that point once I, once I know it. You know, typing it up isn't all that hard. Where I do struggle then is with the dialogue because I want it to, dialogue's really hard to get right so it sounds right. Um, do you say it out loud in front of Sometimes the, I do, the, yeah. The, yeah, sometimes I'll say it out loud or, you know, I'll, I'll show it to somebody else and have them read it. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and, and then sometimes I have a tendency to overwrite. So what happens is uh, if it's a story where I'm going to do the lettering myself, that, you know, the actual putting the captions and the word balloons and everything, um, it helps me a lot because when the art comes back and I'm doing the lettering, I realize I just, I wrote way too much, you know, and I'll edit myself at that point okay. and cut down. Less is more. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, uh, 
I, I, I kind of the opposite. I find the dialogue part come comes a little easier to me. I, I think maybe because I read so many Elmore Leonard novels, like the snappy patter. Okay. I, I really enjoy writing. Okay. Well, Ken Epstein, Dara Naragi, and Max Inc., thank you very much for being here today on Writer's Talk. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll have all these um, things available for people to look at. And from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing. You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with our guests Dara Naragi, Ken Epstein, and Max Inc. For more information about our guests, visit us at writerstalk.org. Join us next time as we talk to members of the OSU student group 8th Floor Improv about writing on the fly. And we will also be joined by Scott Rabb to discuss writing about LeBron James in his book, The Whore of Akron. Until then, this is Brendan Telerik. Keep writing. Thank you.